Chapter Two of The Secret Battle by A. P. Herbert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Those first three days were, for many of us, who did not know the mild autumn months, the most pleasant we spent on the peninsula. The last weeks of May had something of the quality of an old English summer, and the seven plagues of the peninsula had not yet attained the intolerable violence of June and July. True, the inhabited portion of the narrow land we won had already become in great part a wilderness, the myrtle and rock-rose and tangled cistus, and all that wealth of spring flowers in which the landing parties had fallen and died in April had long been trodden to death, and there were wide stretches of yellow desert where not even the parched scrub survived. But in the two and a half miles of bare country which lay between the capes and the foothills of Achibaba was one considerable oasis of olives and stunted oaks, and therein, on the slopes of the bridge, was our camp fortunately set. The word camp contains an unmerited compliment to the place. The manner of its birth was characteristic of military arrangements in those days. When we were told, on that first mysterious midnight, to dig ourselves a shelter against the morning's searching, we were far from imagining that what we dug would be our peninsular home and haven of rest from the firing line for many months to come. And so we made what we conceived to be the quickest and simplest form of shelter against a quite temporary emergency, long, straight, untraversed ditches, running parallel to and with but a few yards between each other. No worse form of permanent dwelling-place could conceivably have been constructed, for the men were cramped in these places with a minimum of comfort and a maximum of danger. No man could climb out of his narrow drain without casting a shower of dust from the crumbling parapet onto his sleeping neighbor in the next ditch, and three large German shells could have destroyed half the regiment. Yet there were many such camps, most of them lacking the graceful concealment of our trees. Such targets even the Turkish artillery must sometimes hit. There were no dugouts in the accepted sense of the Western Front no deep, elaborate, staircase chambers hollowed out by miners with miners' material. Our dugouts were dugouts in truth, shallow excavations scooped in the surface of the earth. The only roof for a man against sun and shells was a waterproof sheet stretched precariously over his hole. It is sufficient testimony to the indifference of the Turkish artillery that with such naked concentrations of men scattered about the peninsula, casualties in the rest camps were so few. Each officer had his own private hole, set democratically among the men's, and an officer's mess was simply made by digging a larger hole and roofing it with two waterproof sheets instead of one. There was no luxury among the infantry there, and the gulf which yawns between the lives of officer and man in France, as regards material comfort, was barely discernible in Gallipoli. Food was dull and monotonous. For weeks we had only bully beef and biscuits, and a little coarse bacon and tea, 
but it was the same for all, one honorable equality of discomfort. At first there were no canteen facilities, and when some newcomer came from one of the islands with a bottle of champagne and another of chartreuse, we drank it with bully and cast-iron biscuit. Drinking water was as precious as the elixir of life, and almost as unobtainable, but officer and man had the same ration to eke out through the thirsty day. Wells were sunk and sometimes immediately condemned, and when we knew the water was clear and sweet to taste, it was hard to have it corrupted with the metallic flavor of chemicals by the medical staff. Then, indeed, did a man learn to love water. Then did he learn discipline, when he filled his water bottle in the morning with the exiguous ration of the day, and fought with the intolerable craving to put it to his lips, and there and then gurgle down his fill. In the spring nights it was very cold, and men shivered in their single blanket under the unimaginable stars. But very early the sun came up, and by five o'clock all the camp were singing, and there were three hours of fresh coolness when it was very good to wash in a canvas bucket, and smoke in the sun before the torrid time came on. And again at seven, when the sun sat perched on the great rock of Samothrace, and Imbros was set in a fleecy marvel of pink and saffron clouds, there were two hours of pure physical content. But these, I think, were more nearly perfect than the morning, because they succeeded the irritable fevers of the day. Then the crickets in the branches sang less tediously, and the flies melted away, and all over the peninsula the wood-fires began to twinkle in the dusk as the men cooked over a few sticks the little delicacies which were preserved for this hour of respite. When we had done we sat under our olive-tree in the clear twilight and watched the last aeroplane sail home to Rabbit Islands, and talked and argued till the glow-worms glimmering in the scrub, and up the hill the long roll of the Turks' rapid fire told us that darkness was at hand, and the chill dew sent us into our crannies to sleep. So we were not sorry for three days of quiet in the camp before we went up the hill. Harry alone was all eagerness to reach the firing line with the least possible delay. But then Harry was like none of us. Indeed, none of us were like each other. It would have been strange if we had been. War chroniclers have noted with an accent of astonishment the strange diversity of persons to be found in units of the new army, and the essential sameness of their attitude to the war. As though a man were to go into the haymarket and be surprised if the first twelve pedestrians there were not of the same profession, were then to summon them to the assistance of a woman in the hands of a rough, and be still surprised at the similarity of their methods. We were, in truth, a motley crowd, gathered from everywhere, but when we sat under that olive tree we were very much alike, with the single exception of Harry. Egerton, our company commander, a man of about thirty, with a round face and a large head, was a stockbroker by profession, and, rather improbably, an old territorial by pastime. 
He was an excellent company commander, but would have made a still more admirable second-in-command, for his training in figures and his meticulous habits in such things as the keeping of accounts were just what is required of a second-in-command, and were lamentably deficient in myself. The intricacies of acquittance rolls and impressed accounts, and page three of the soldier's paybook, were meat and drink to him, and in general I must confess that I shamefully surrendered such delicacies to him. Harry Penrose had the fourteenth platoon. Of the other three subalterns, perhaps the most interesting was Hewitt. He, like Harry, had been at Oxford before the war, though they had never come together there. He was a fair, dreamy person of remarkably good looks. Alone of all the young Apollos I have known did he at all deserve that title. Most of these have been men of surpassing stupidity and material tastes, but Hewitt added to his physical qualifications something of the mental refinement which presumably one should expect of even a modern Apollo. Intensely fastidious, he frankly detested the war, and all the dirt and disgust he must personally encounter. Like Harry, he was an idealist, but more so, for he could not idealize the war. But the shrinking of his spirit had no effect on his conduct. He was no less courageous than Harry or anyone else, and no less keen to see the thing through. Only at that time he was a little less blind. A year senior to Harry, he had taken greats in 1914, and though his degree had been disappointingly low, he had not yet lost the passionate attachment of the greats man to philosophy and thoughts of the ultimate truths. Sometimes he would try to induce one of us to talk with him of his religious and philosophical doubts. But in that feverish place it was too difficult for us, and usually he brooded over his problems alone. Eustace, of the 16th platoon, was a journalist by repute, though it was never discovered to what journal, if any, he was specially attached. His character was more attractive than his appearance, which was long, awkward, and angular. And if he had ever been to school, he would have been quite undeservedly unpopular for not playing games undeservedly, because one could not conceive of him as playing any game. Physically, indeed, he was one of nature's gawks. Intellectually, he was nimble, not to say athletic, with an acute and deeply logical mind. As a companion, more especially a companion in war, he was made tedious by a habit of cynicism and a passion for argument. The cynicism, I think, had developed originally from some early grievance against society, had been adopted as an effective pose, and had now become a part of his nature. Whatever its origin, it was wearing to us, for in the actual scenes of war one likes to cling to one's illusions while any shred of them remains, and would rather they faded honorably under the gentle influence of time than be torn to fragments in a moment by reasoned mockery. But Eustace was never tired of exhibiting the frailty and subterfuge of all men, 
particularly in their relations to the war. The nation arrived for him as regularly as the German submarines would allow, and all his views were in that sense distinctly national. If any of us were rash enough to read that paper ourselves, we were inevitably provoked to some comment which led to a hot wrangle on the public schools, or Kitchener, or the rights of the war, and the pleasant calm of the dusk was marred. For Eustace could always meet us with a powerfully logical case, and while in spirit we revolted against his heresies, we were distressed by the appeal they made to our reluctant reasons. Harry, the most ingenuous of us all, and the most devoted to his illusions, was particularly worried by this conflict. It seemed very wrong to him that a man so loyal and gallant in his personal relations with others should trample so ruthlessly on their dearest opinions. Burnett was of a very different type. Tall and muscular, with reddish hair and vivid blue eyes, he looked, as he wanted to look, a man of action by nature and practice. He had knocked about for some years in Africa and Australia, a process which had failed equally to establish his fortunes or soften his rough edges, and from the first he affected the patronizing attitude of the experienced campaigner. The little discomforts of campfire were nothing to him, for were they not part of his normal life? And when I emerged from my dugout pursued by a centipede of incredible ferocity, he held forth for a long time on the best method of dispatching rattlesnakes in the Umgoga, or some such locality. By degrees, however, as life became more unbearable, the conviction dawned upon us that he was no less sensible to heat and hunger and thirst than mere temporary campaigners, and rather more ready to utter his complaints. Finally, the weight of evidence became overwhelming, and it was whispered at the end of our first week at Gallipoli that Burnett was bogus. The quality of being bogus was, in those days, the last word in military condemnation, and in Burnett's case, events showed the verdict to be lamentably correct. So we were a strangely assorted crowd, only alike, as I have said, in that we were keen on the winning of this war and resolved to do our personal best towards that end. Of the five of us, Hewitt and Eustace had the most influence on Harry. Me he regarded as a solid kind of wall that would never let him down, or be guilty of any startling deviations from the normal. By Hewitt he was personally and spiritually attracted. By Eustace, alternately fascinated and disturbed. And it was a very bad day for Harry when Hewitt's death removed that gentle, comfortable influence. We were ordered to relieve the blanks at midnight on the fourth day, and once again we braced ourselves for the last desperate battle of our lives. All soldiers go through this process during their first weeks of active service, every time they move anywhere. Immense expectations, vows, fears, prayers, fill their minds, and nothing particular happens. 
only the really experienced soldier knows that it is the exception and not the rule for anything particular to happen, and the heroes of romance and history who do not move a muscle when told that they are to attack at dawn are generally quite undeserving of praise, since long experience has taught them that the attack is many times more likely to be cancelled than to occur. Until it actually does happen, they will not believe in it. They will make all proper preparations, but quite rightly do not move a muscle. We, however, were now to have our first illustration of this great military truth, for, indeed, we were to have no battle. Yet that night's march to the trenches was an experience that made full compensation. It was already dusk when we moved out of the rest camp, and the moon was not up. As usual in new units, the leading platoons went off at a reckless canter, and stumbling after them in the gathering shadows over rocky, precipitous slopes, and in and out of the clumps of bush, falling into dark holes onto indignant sleepers, or maddeningly entangled in hidden strands of wire, the rear companies were speedily out of touch. To a heavily laden infantryman, there are few things more exasperating than a night march into the line conducted too fast. If the country be broken and strewn with obstacles, at which each man must wait while another climbs or drops or wrestles or wades in front of him, and must laboriously scamper after him in the shadows, lest he, and thereby all those behind him, be lost. If the country be unknown to him, so that, apart from purely military considerations, the fear of being lost is no small thing, for a man knows that he may wander all night alone in the dark, surrounded by unknown dangers, cut off from sleep and rations and the friendly voices of companions, a jest among them when he discovers them. Then such a march becomes a nightmare. On this night it dawned gradually on those in front that they were unaccompanied save by the first platoon, and a long halt and much shouting and searching gathered most of the regiment together hot, cursing, and already exhausted. And now we pass the five white water towers, standing mysteriously in a swamp, and came out of the open country into the beginning of a gully. These gullies were deep, steep-sided ravines, driven through all the lower slopes of Achibaba, and carrying in the spring a thin stream of water, peopled by many frogs, down to the straits or the sea. It was easier going here, for there was a rough track beside the stream to follow. Yet, though those in front were marching, as they thought, with inconceivable deliberation, the rear men of each platoon were doubling round the corners among the trees, and cursing as they ran. There was then a wild hail of bullets in all those gullies, since for many hours of each night the Turk kept up a sustained and terrible rapid fire from his trenches far up the hill, and whether by design or bad shooting, the majority of these bullets passed high over our trenches and fell hissing in the gully bed. 
So now all the air seemed full of humming, whistling things, and all around in the gully banks and the bushes by the stream there were vicious spurts as they fell. It was always a marvel how few casualties were caused by this stray fire, and tonight we were chiefly impressed with this wonder. In the stream the frogs croaked incessantly with a note of weary indifference to the medley of competing noises. At one point there was a kind of pothole in the stream where the water squeezing through made a kind of high-toned wail, delivered with stabbing emphasis at regular intervals. So weird was this sound, which could be heard many hundred yards away, and gradually asserted itself above all other contributions to that terrible din, that many of the men, already mystified and excited, said to themselves that this was the noise of the hideous explosive bullets of which they had heard. Soon we were compelled to climb out of the gully path to make way for some descending troops, and stumbled forward with a curious feeling of nakedness high up in open ground. Here the bullets were many times multiplied, and many of us said that we could feel them passing between us. Indeed, one or two men were hit, but though we did not know it, most of these near-sounding bullets flew high above us. After a little we were halted and lay down, wondering in the sibilant dark. Then we moved on and halted again, and realized suddenly that we were very tired. At the head of the column the guide had lost his way, and could not find the entrance to the communication trench. And here in the most exposed area of all that peninsula we must wait until he did. The march was an avoidable piece of mismanagement. The whole regiment was being unnecessarily endangered. But none of this we knew, so very few men were afraid for we were still in the bliss of ignorance. It seemed to us that these strange proceedings must be a part of the everyday life of the soldier. If they were not, we raw creatures should not have been asked to endure them. We had no standard of safety or danger by which to estimate our position, and so the miraculous immunity we were enjoying was taken as a matter of course, and we were blissfully unafraid. At the same time we were extremely bored and tired, and the sweat cooled on us in the chill night air. And when at last we came into the deep communication trench, we felt that the end of this weariness must surely be near. But the worst exasperations of relieving an unknown line were still before us. It was a two-mile trudge in the narrow ditches to the front line. No war correspondent has ever described such a march. It is not included in the official horrors of war, but this is the kind of thing which, more than battle and blood, harasses the spirit of the infantryman and composes his life. The communication trenches that night were good and deep and dry, and free from the awfulness of mud, but they were very few and unintelligently used. There had been an attack that day, and coming by the same trench was a long stream of stretchers and wounded men, 
and odd parties coming to fetch water from the well, and whole battalions relieved from other parts of the line. Our men had been sent up insanely with full packs, for a man so equipped to pass another naked in the narrow ditch would have been difficult. When all those that he meets have also straps and hooks and excrescences about them, each separate encounter means heartbreaking entanglements and squeezes and sudden paroxysms of rage. That night we stood a total of hours hopelessly jammed in the suffocating trench, with other troops trying to get down. A man stood in those crushes, unable to sit down, unable to lean comfortably against the wall because of his pack, unable even to get his hand to his water bottle and quench his intolerable thirst, unable almost to breathe for the hot smell of herded humanity. Only a thin ribbon of stars overhead, remotely roofing his prison, reminded him that indeed he was still in the living world and not pursuing some hideous nightmare. At long last, someone would take charge of the situation, and by sheer muscular fighting for space, the two masses would be extricated. Then one moved on again. And now each man has become a mere lifeless automaton. Every few yards there is a wire hanging across the trench at the height of a man's eyes, and he runs blindly into it, or it catches in the piling swivel of his rifle. Painfully he removes it, or in a fit of fury tears the wire away from him. Or there is a man lying in a corner with a wounded leg crying out to each passer-by not to tread on him, or a stretcher party slowly struggling against the tide. Mechanically each man grapples with these obstacles, mechanically repeats the ceaseless messages that are passed up and down, and the warning wire, stretcher party, step up to those behind and stumbles on. He is only conscious of the dead weight of his load, and the braces of his pack biting into his shoulders, of his thirst, and the sweat of his body, and the longing to lie down and sleep. When we halt, Men fall into a doze as they stand, and curse pitifully when they are urged on from behind. We reach the inhabited part of the line, and the obstacles become more frequent, for there are traverses every ten yards, and men sleeping on the floor, and a litter of rifles, water cans, and scattered equipment. Forever we wind round the endless traverses, and squeeze past the endless host we are relieving, and sometimes the parapet is low or broken or thin, or there is a dangerous gap, and we are told to keep our heads down, and dully pass back the message, so that it reaches men meaninglessly when they have passed the danger point, or are still far from it. All the time there is a wild rattle of rapid fire from the Turks, and bullets hammer irritably on the parapet, or fly singing overhead. When a man reached his destined part of the trench that night, there were still long minutes of exasperation before him, for we were inexperienced troops, and first of all the men crowded in too far together, 
and must turn about and press back so as to cover the whole ground to be garrisoned. Then they would flock like sad sheep too far in the opposite direction. This was the subaltern's bad time, for the officer must squeeze backwards and forwards, struggling to dispose properly his own sullen platoon, and it was hard for him to be patient with their stupidity. For, like them, he only longed to fling off his cursed equipment and lie down and sleep forever. He, like them, had but one thought, that if there were to be no release from the hateful burden that clung to his back and cut into his shoulders and ceaselessly impeded him, if there were to be no relief for his thirst and the urgent aching of all his body, he must soon sink down and scream. Harry's platoon was settled in when I found him, hidden away somewhere in the third reserve line. He had conscientiously posted a few sentries and done all those things which a good platoon commander should do, and was lying himself in a sort of stupor of fatigue. Physically he was not strong, rather frail, in fact, for the infantry. He had a narrow chest and slightly round shoulders, and his heart would not have passed any civilian doctor. And, from my own experience, I knew that the march must have tried him terribly. But a little rest had soothed the intense nervous irritation whose origins I have tried to describe, and his spirit was as sturdy as ever. He struggled to his feet and leaned over the parados with me. The moon was now high up in the northeast. The Turks had ceased their rapid fire at moonrise, and now an immense peace wrapped the peninsula. We were high up on the center slopes of Achibaba, and all the six miles which other men had conquered lay bathed in the moonlight below us. Far away, at the Cape, we could see the long green lights of the hospital ships, and all about us were glowworms in the scrub. Left and right the pale parapets of trenches crept like dim-seen snakes into the little valleys and vanished over the opposite slopes. Only a cruiser offshore firing lazily at long intervals disturbed the slumberous stillness. No better sedative could have been desired. "'How did you like the march?' I said. "'Oh, all right. One of my men was wounded, I believe, but I didn't see him.' "'All right?' I said. Personally, I thought it was damned awful. It's a marvel that any of us are here at all. I hear A Company's still adrift as it is. Well, anyhow, we got here, said Harry. What a wonderful spot this is. And look at those damned glowworms. I was anxious to know what impression the night had made on Harry, but these and other answers gave me no real clue. I had a suspicion that it had, in truth, considerably distressed him, but any such effect had clearly given way to the romantic appeal of the quiet moon. I, too, was enjoying the sense of peace, but I was still acutely conscious of the unpleasantness of the night's proceedings, and a certain envy took hold of me at this youth's capacity to concentrate 
on the attractive shadow of distasteful things. There was a heavy, musty smell over all part of the trench, the smell of a dead Turk lying just over the parapet, and it occurred to me, maliciously, to wake Harry from his dreams and bring home to him the reality of things. "'Funny smell you've got here, Harry,' I said. "'Know what it is?' "'Yes, it's cactus or amaryllis, or one of those funny plants they have here, isn't it? I read about it in the papers.' This was too much. "'It's a dead Turk!' I told him, with a wicked anticipation of the effect I should produce. The effect, however, was not what I expected. "'No,' said Harry, with obvious elation. "'Let's find the devil!' Forthwith he swarmed over the parapet, full of life again, nosed about till he found the reeking thing, and gazed on it with undisguised interest. No sign of horror or disgust could I detect in him. Yet it was not pure ghoulishness. It was simply the boy's greed for experience and the savor of adventure. Anyhow, my experiment had failed, and I found that I was glad. But when I was leaving him for the next platoon, he was lying down for a little sleep on the dirty floor of the trench and as he flashed his electric torch over the ground, I saw several small white objects writhing in the dust. The company commander whom we had relieved had told me how, under all these trenches, the Turks and the French had buried many of their dead, and in a moment of nauseating insight, I knew that these things were the maggots which fed upon their bodies. "'Harry,' I said, you can't sleep there. Look at those things. And I told him what they were. Rubbish, he said. They're glowworms gone to sleep. Well, then I left him. But that's how he was in those days. End of chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline